I'll start the music in a second. Welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Thursday, April 30th. I'm Abram Guerra. I'm Sam Rosaldo. Abram, you've often referred to our lizard brain on this podcast, and I realize now that I haven't always known exactly what you're talking about. I thought I knew, but then I just read something that that really kind of helped me understand and bring it into focus in a way that I didn't have before. So I wanted to share it, and, and I think it might provide a good jumping off point for today's conversation. So this is from My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Manakim. I may be mispronouncing that, um, but uh, I'm gonna just jump in. Uh, so my apologies if I didn't get the name quite right. Our lizard brain cannot think. It is reflexively protective and it is strong. It loves whatever it feels will keep us safe, and it fears and hates whatever it feels will do us harm. Our, all our sensory input has to pass through the reptilian part of our brain before it even reaches the cortex, where we think and reason. Our lizard brain scans all of this input and responds in a fraction of a second by either letting something enter into the cortex or rejecting it and inciting a fight, flee, or freeze response. This mechanism allows our lizard brain to override our thinking brain whenever it senses real or imagined danger. It blocks any information from reaching our thinking brain until after it has sent a message to fight, flee, or freeze. In many situations, our thinking brain is smart enough to be careful and situational. But when there appears to be danger, our lizard brain may say to the thinking brain, screw you, out of my way, we're going to fight, flee, or freeze. So what we were talking about today is so deeply embedded in us. It operates powerfully, most powerfully, in our lizard brains. And what we're talking about today is white supremacy culture. So the author, Manikam, calls this a way, calls the, the way that this operates within ourselves white body supremacy. And the point here is that this is something that is unseen. And our thinking brain, our cortex, often doesn't even have a chance to change its patterns around white supremacy, because the lizard brain will cut off the opportunity to go there. We cannot think our way out of white supremacy. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I know for some even saying the word white supremacy can feel triggering. And I think that language of triggering is is really trying to name this thing, this lizard brain thing that like, there are ideas, deep ideas that bring us a sense of safety and calm and like the world is okay. And when those get touched and violated, uh, it really it really messes with us. Um, so we wanted to have this conversation today about white supremacy culture, knowing all of that, knowing that that's how it lands uh, and what it means and how we can begin to deconstruct it. And we are really, I can't tell you, truly honored to have um, someone who I don't know if she would self-identify as an expert. Many, uh, you know, I'll let her tell you that, but I certainly mm -hmm. identify her as an expert. 
um, to talk here today. Tema Okun has spent over 30 years working and learning alongside leaders, organizations, schools, and communities focused on racial justice and equity. She's white and Jewish, a writer, artist, and a poet deeply committed to racial justice and Palestinian solidarity. She is the author of the award-winning book, The Emperor Has No Clothes, teaching about race and racism to people who don't want to know. She lives in the Durham, North Carolina area where she's fortunate uh, to live among uh, a beloved community, uh, the, the beloved community emergent uh, around her. Uh, her current project is deepening her ability to love her neighbor as herself. She says she's finding the instruction easy and the follow-through challenging, given how we live in a culture that is afraid to help us do either or both. Tema, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, so we've been asking this question, uh, and you know, it, it's a hard one to kind of stand up for people, um, uh, but I'm just going to ask it. Um, all of us are going through different kinds of grief right now, whether it's grief of, of loved ones lost or on the, on the precipice of loss, uh, or just the loss of routine or normal things. Um, what is something that you're grieving your way through right now, uh, uh, given everything that's going on in the world? You gave me this question ahead of time, so I've had a little bit of time to think about it. And I'm grieving so many different things. The thing I think I want to talk about is how, you know, this pandemic is really shining a light on everything that existed before it mm -hmm. um, around inequity and disparity and the, the very different lives that we are leading. And I think that... Um, when I talk about white supremacy culture or white supremacy, I talk about how its very purpose is to divide and disconnect us mm. from each other based on race lines within racial groups and to disconnect us from ourselves. And I feel like one of the things that I'm grieving is I'm one of the people who is staying at home. I don't provide an essential service. I'm an upper middle class woman. A white woman, I have a safe place to live. Actually, I have a beautiful place to live. It's on a river. Um, and I am very aware that there are so many people having a completely different experience. Yeah. Um, yep. I have a good friend who's a nurse who's having a very different experience. And and I, I know people who are not in the same kind of situation that I'm in. And I think that I'm grieving the what feels to me like a widening disconnect. That's it's hard for me to it's hard for me to know how to feel or be useful in this time hmm. and how to show my desire to be connected to people who are um, literally putting their lives on the line. So I think there's some deep grief for me around um, around that. I have a friend who was sharing with me a cartoon that some of you may have seen that sort of illustrates the pandemic in in a city cityscape where the people on the ground floor are in the streets they have to provide essential services they're dying many of them are dying or sick on the second floor are people who are glued to their computers and doing their zoom calls and their work from home mm. the third floor are the people who are playing violins and um mm. you know doing yoga and meditation mm -hmm. and i would put myself on the third floor, not that I can play on my own as much as I would like to. <laughs> and and this um, and, and to me, there's such, uh, while it's a privileged place to be, and I'm putting quotes around the word privilege, 
um, because it is a it is a privileged place to be. It's also, uh, in my experience, a very lonely place to be. Um, to be on the top floor, uh, mm. separate from people who are actually experiencing this in a different way, um, and not knowing how to show my solidarity. I mean, I'm I'm doing I'm doing some things, but not to not not to, not to be able to be there in the same way. So that's what I'm. Going have uh, Have either of you guys seen the movie Passengers? It's like a recent a recent movie with Jennifer Lawrence and uh, uh, what's the guy's name uh, in uh, Parks and Rec and the Marvel movies. Um, anyway, it's this movie about being on a spaceship, and they're awake on a spaceship that they're supposed to be asleep on, and one of them is the daughter of a famous writer who is in first class, and and the other is an engineer working class, and the movie kind of highlights the difference in their meal plan and in their quarters on this yeah. big spaceship or whatever. Like, it's, it's such an enduring part of our construct of what society is, that even when we're going out to conquer space planets, we still keep a first-class cabin and a second-class and a third-class, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's such a profound image. I've seen the one you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. So, Tema, and, and so you spoke about this separation and the separation being the purpose of white supremacy. Um, can you tell us a little bit more, just give us the background, what is white supremacy culture? And, and also, how did you come to that understanding of what it is? How do you know? Yeah. Um, so white supremacy culture, like culture is, is, any culture is simply a set of beliefs and values. And another way to think about it is what a group of people considers normal. Um, and so any, any and every group has a culture. And so a white supremacy culture is a culture that believes and values and, and thinks that it's normal for whiteness or things attached to whiteness to be of high and more value while also being normal. And it's such a white supremacy culture is very, very devious in how it contradicts itself and still makes some kind of sense. Mm. So to be white is to be normal, but it's also to be better and to be superior. Um, and and it it functions to and it functions to divide us from each other and to divide us from ourselves. And it does that in order to serve power and profit for a very few people. And so it has a purpose. It has a power and profit purpose. And you know that white supremacy culture is at play whenever profit is valued more than a, than a living thing. Mm. So it's you know it's, it's at work. It's, so lots it's, of examples to <laughs> possible. Yes. Uh, yeah. You kind of touched on this uh, in in that first comment that you know the, America is seeing um, that story since maybe week three or four of of uh, business as usual being suspended, all of a sudden everyone was watching from home as it happened um, in this disproportionate way. Um, you know, I, I could go in a lot of different directions from trying to reel it in um, for the sake of time because we've got more questions. But um, yeah, this, this where we recognize profit or, or whatever the outputs that are connected to dollars in the case of a non-profit kind of driven uh, thing, um, dollars, where the money is. When we start putting the money stuff in front of the humans who are saying, wait, what about this? I want to mm -hmm. talk about this piece, or I want to slow down on this piece, or I, I want to hear stories, not just go with the ones that we've recorded that are text, right? You can, you can go in, in through the document and kind of you know, see it everywhere. 
that there are these things reinforcing this one kind of pathway to churn through uh, results. And then I would say we're, we're, in, we're in such an extreme stage of valuing profit over people, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we have been, we, we always have been in our country and it's just, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, I continue to ask like, what do, what does our current president and Congress have to do for people to say enough already? Yeah. And I think it just, it, because, because we're not able to say enough in a way that has meaning, um, mm -hmm. lets us know how deeply embedded this idea is, how, how much we don't question um, that profit should be driving things. Yeah, I mean, and to the extent that people have, politicians have explicitly been saying that we should value the economy more than human life. That's I mean, right. it's they, they, they're, they're saying, what's, what's the expression people are saying all the time? That the thing that you're supposed to think they're saying out loud? Yeah. Um, and, and it's still not always recognized. But I want to ask, returning to my question, just how did you come to this understanding? Like specifically, and we, and we don't have to get into the specific beliefs and values of white supremacy culture so much as like, but, but if people were to read your work, they would see that you've identified these are the tenets of white supremacy culture. How did you come to the place where you were able to, to say, this is what they are? Well, I um, first of all, I didn't identify white supremacy culture per, per se. I was lucky, sure. I was very lucky to be working with very brilliant people yep. who gave me a framework for understanding how white supremacy and racism operate. And in that framework, we talk about how um, uh, racism is expressed interpersonally, institutionally, meaning policies and practices of an institution, and culturally, meaning the beliefs and values and norms. And I was at a meeting, um, I was on the West Coast for a year. Um, I was working, my mentor and colleague at the time was a man named Kenneth Jones, mm -hmm. and we were doing a lot of um, anti-racist training with uh, social justice organizations on the West Coast. And I had gone to a meeting, I don't even remember the meeting, and I came home. I, it, so two things coincided. I'd been to a training by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, which is based mm -hmm. in New Orleans and sort of the granddaddy and grandmother of all um, the anti-racist work that's come out since then, um, and they still exist. And one of their trainers, a man named Daniel Buford, had done this brilliant um, lecture on how racism is embedded in the language. So that was in my brain. And then I went to this meeting where it was just so frustrating um, because a lot of the characteristics that you see in the article that I wrote called white supremacy culture were showing up in the meeting. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those, you hear people say this kind of thing and this is the one time it happened to me. I came home and it wrote itself. Just, mm -hmm. just I was so frustrated and mm -hmm. it just, um, and I, you know, I, I just came out of it like here, here are all the things that get in the way of us being able to be with each other in some kind of genuine, authentic, meaningful way. And, um, and it's, it's, of all the things I've written, and I've written a lot of things, that's the one that's had the most staying power over time. I wrote it in 1998 or not, 1999. And I'm working on a website now so that I can revise it and add to it. It needs a lot of updating. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. One, one uh, hopes and dreams that like something you write based on an experience you're living will then have this life afterwards. I have sat in circles where, where you know, even in my own critical consciousness development, 
where like people were going through the first time through any conversation about race at a conference and what was passed out was this document and and if the facilitator could hold the space and prevent people from detouring and maybe some people would leave or whatever you know i went to two or three or four like this right where it was this document and and just a very simple let's face this in ourselves and our organizations and it was the most powerful conversation that i saw and that to me felt like whatever i don't know who these people are that wrote it but i know that this language and this frame is something that operates across right and people start to see things that they didn't see before so i want i want to say something that's important to me because when i wrote it um, I was in what I would call my self-righteous phase. <laughs> mm. So, um, and, and in my book, I write about this. I write about um, going through these phases where in the first phase, so my mentor, Ken, Kenneth, an African-American man, he died um, way too soon in 2004. Hmm. But he, um, he was my senior. He was more experienced. He was a better, tra- he was you know, very skilled. And he told me in our early trainings that we were going to, um, break up into caucuses, a white caucus and a people of color caucus, and that I was to go lead the white caucus. And I would say, because he told me to do it, I would go, okay, I'll do it. But I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to be with the white people. Because mm. if I was with the white people, how was I going to prove I was one? I was an exception. How was I going to prove to the people of color in the room that I was the good white person, as opposed to all the other white people? Because mm. I was a trainer, and you know, I had this language, and so that was my first phase. It was like I. I did it because I was told I should do it by someone I respected, but I didn't really want to be there. I didn't want to be like other white people. My whole job was to prove that I was different and better. I can relate. And then the second phase, which lasted way too long, was this self-righteous phase, which is like, well, I understand I'm white like you, but I am a trainer. I do have more information than you, and you need to prove to me that you're down like I'm down. And I lasted that. And again, white supremacy culture gets embedded in all of our justice efforts right and then finally i think i think it was a a matter of time uh growing older um and i remember i remember uh having good good bosses or not bosses but good mentors um who helped me to see that my critical thinking i was using my critical thinking as a weapon rather than a skill Mm. and i wasn't applying it um, thoughtfully or with discernment and I was having a negative effect on the morale of the people around me because I was always pointing out what was wrong. And I started to see how self-righteous I can <laughs> was getting in the way of my ability to be in relationship with other people and then with myself. Most Because mm. all of the critical judgment I was putting on others, I was bringing to myself. And so in, in my introduction, I, I'm quite serious that this, this um, task of learning to love my neighbor as myself is very challenging because we live in a culture that doesn't want us to do either. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm-hmm. so I think for, I would say for the last 15 years, maybe hopefully a little longer, I've been really clear that I am no better or worse than any other white pe- person. I'm completely conditioned like other people. My um, racist conditioning is very deep. I've had more chance to work on it. I have more information than a lot of people. Um, and so I, I, I no longer train from a place of shame or blame or righteousness or educate or teach from that place. Um, and sometimes, uh, and, and I think that's important. I, I think I don't think we change by, chastise, by chastising each other. And the challenge, there's a huge challenge there, which is that 
um, in multiracial spaces, when white people are causing harm, uh, then our, our colleagues of color, our friends of color, the people we love, uh, often want us to, to call each other out right. you know, and to stop it. And so that we're, we have to, you know, there's a lot of, there's skill involved here in learning how to, um, what I would say is call each other in um, and to interrupt harmful behavior when it's happening in our groups and, um, and do that in a way where we're not, as my other great mentor and friend, Cynthia Brown uh, said, never throw anyone away. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's a challenge. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so we opened up with this um, maybe weird question about grief, uh, really really out of trying to be in touch with the moment and create space to normalize mm-hmm. talking about grief in a culture that doesn't, you know, well, that by, values logic over emotion, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I wanted to ask about this idea of creating space um, within organizations. And so that phrase, creating space in organizations, right, is like a loaded phrase. Um, but the, the concept is that, you know, there is, there is the spaces created by management and leadership to issue orders and, and resolve tensions and whatever, whatever we're supposed to be doing on these weekly or biweekly calls where announcements are made. Um, and then there are informal workspaces where, where oftentimes the real sense making, creativity certainly, and everything that a knowledge economy produces comes out of those other spaces. And that includes spaces that are about anti-racism. And I wanted to kind of make that connection a little more concrete. Um, do, do you see a connection between this idea of making space for emotions and especially for making space of emotions around loss and, and disproportionate loss of, of people who are according to the logic of the system that they find themselves in equals. And yet, you know, we're conscious that our female colleagues make right cents on the dollar. We're conscious that, that the, the, the ground is not level underneath us. Is making space for grief in our organizations connect to this idea of interrupting uh, and creating space for that work of anti-racism and, and like how, why is that so important? Completely and utterly critical. Um, and, so I, I love, I work with, I've worked with schools my whole working life. And one of the reasons I love working with schools is because um, so many of the lessons that we've learned about racial equity are very evident in schools. And so if we start, let's start with the students, right? And so what we know, if we're paying attention at all, is that if students are feeling things and we don't allow them to feel things, they're not going to be able to learn squat, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, there's, there's this idea that there's learning over here and feeling over here. My hands, I know you can't <laughs> yeah, see yeah. it, my hands are on me. Hands on two different sides of the Zoom screen yes. right now, yeah. It's just, it's ridiculous. You know, and, and I think about, think about anything you've struggled to learn ever. So for me, it would be math, mm-hmm. you know. And I never, I was never good at math. And I, I remember, or science, I remember a chemistry uh, teacher telling me that I wasn't, I clearly wasn't chemistry material, so he wasn't going to bother with my questions, right? So there were a lot of feelings attached to to that um, sense that I don't know how to do this. I'm not good at this. I'm a girl. I'm not good at this. And all the, all the different messages. And what a difference it makes to have a teacher that says, you can do this. You can do this. Or let's talk about how you're feeling that you're not, you can't do this. Let's, let's unwind that a little bit. 
or let's unwind how you feel about the fact that you just came from a house from a house where you didn't get breakfast or you came from a house where there's violence or you came from a you know you're um you saw uh you had to watch michael garner you know get killed on the street or the the yeah which doesn't have anything to do with what's happening at home or the values of the family right. you just were walking to school right 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 and and if you if we don't make room for that in our students and then if we don't make room for it in ourselves the idea that we should stuff our feelings so we can do our work is absolute insanity and in a school environment more than almost any other environment I can think of. Mm -hmm. And I, I do, I, I co-facilitate a program for, for faculty at Duke. Um, and one of the first things that we talk about as faculty at Duke, which is a very elite um, private school, Southern private school, is how I think a big aha for a lot of faculty is they have to address what's happening because there's so much racism happening on campuses. They have to acknowledge it, address it, allow students to, to process it in some kind of way if they want any kind of learning to happen. And that's whether you're teaching science or engineering, whatever it is that you're teaching. It's not like race is just something for the anthropology class, right? And so the, and the faculty needs to be able to process their feelings and the administrators have to be able to. And the higher up the chain you go, the less you're supposed to feel. Sort of like your professionalism hmm. tied to how little you feel or how how little you show vulnerability or, or admit that you don't know what you're doing or, mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it just keeps all that, keeps all that stuff going. So you have a teacher in a classroom who has never, never been taught anything about racism, except that it's personal. And so if she's not waking up racist in the morning, then it's not happening. And she goes to her class and the white kid raises their hand and goes, I know, I know, I know, I know. And she writes a note home, your child is so curious. What a, what a great child you have. And the black child goes, I know, I know, I know. And she sends that child to the principal's office because she feels threatened because she's never done any of her own work around her own racism. And she's just reinforced the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And you know, there you go. Yeah. And, one, and yeah. No, yeah. yeah, one thing that I think is is so challenging um, for, for people, at least that, I, that I've run into is that once you recognize that that this is really what's happening and you recognize your own complicity in it it almost is as if you're accepting a small share in an infinite account of guilt that you don't want any part of you don't want any any percentage of that infinite guilt of all those bad things that you didn't have anything to do with and i and i get that i i, I also lived that like i'm half spaniard so like half of me is from those who came and, and, and set up a state here. Um, and so, so I get that. Um, however, anything, I just feel, I just feel I have to say anything that an employer asks you to do where you feel like you're trading away part of yourself, your ability to feel, your ability to, to say how you feel or feel trusted or safe, you've got to trade on that in order to get that promotion. Don't take the job, man. Don't take the job. It's not worth it. Yeah. I agree, and I also I also know. So when I was in in um, I, I went all the way. I have a doctorate, um, <laughs> and, and I and my doctoral experience was actually my best school experience ever. And it's because I had really good professors. And one was a man named David Purple, who's also passed. And he he has some phrase for this, which I'm not going to remember. But he basically made the point that um, if we don't have to take the job, then then, then let's not take the job, but some of us have to. 
Right. Like some of us have to work at Walmart. Some mm -hmm. of us, we have right. to feed our family. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thank right? you. So we're all, um, and sort of the who's doing essential services and who's not. Mm -hmm. Like we, in a, in a racist white supremacy capitalist culture, almost everybody is being asked to make choices mm -hmm. that are, are very hard choices to yep. make. And so, again, I think that that's why I think that blaming and shaming isn't really, there's nobody right. who's pure. Yeah. Uh -huh. And the more that we, res it, there's some saying like the more you resist, the more it persists or something. Um, when I was when I was in in um, in high school, so I'm old enough that I was I grew up during Jim Crow in North Carolina, uh, the end of Jim Crow period, and I also grew up uh, during the desegregation of the high schools, and the or the schools, and I was in high school at the time, and the high school. Um, they solved the problem by building a new school on the edge of town and they brought the white students and black students into this new school, but they preserved the identity of the white school altogether and they erased the identity of black. Right. And so the black students were understandably upset. They protested and we had these race councils in each other's homes to talk about race. Mm. We had one in my, my home one, one evening and a young black teen named Sylvester was screaming at me, you're racist. And I was screaming, mm. no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. And that was the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I said, um, okay, hold on. I got to go get refreshments. And I walk upstairs. My mother, who can hear the whole thing, says, you know, get a grip. You're a white girl growing up in a racist country. You're racist. Deal with it. Hmm. Yeah. And that was such a gift that she said that to me because, and I don't remember. Shout out to mom. Shout out to mom. I don't remember if I went back down and said, well, my mother just told me. I don't remember. <laughs> what I remember is that all, you know, that the more energy we spend pushing away our own conditioning, I mean, it's not it's not possible to be white in this country and not have racist conditioning. It's just not possible. Right. Hmm. And the more that we refuse to see it, the more we're going to enact it and reproduce it. And yeah. so, and the more we say, oh, oh, there it is, there it is, shit, there it is. What am I going to do about it? And the more we create a community of friends and colleagues that can help us and support us to do that, again, not in a calling out way, but it's like, did you just realize? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm just bringing it back to this current moment. And what I'm still trying to figure out for myself, so I don't know if my question is, I'm not even sure what my question is, but it is just <laughs> this notion of, you know, again, Abram started talking about creating space for grief. And I'm trying to find the words to explain why in my heart I feel like it's so important right now um, and how it's how it's connected to systemic oppression. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and part of the, the framework that you that you that you wrote in that article uh, around white supremacy culture is helpful to me in explaining it because like Abram said, you talked about how white supremacy culture privileges logic over emotion. And so we're very used to in the workplace, um, you know, not like being emotional is unprofessional. So there's no space for emotion in the workplace. And what I'm grappling with is just how to draw the line for folks who don't quite see the connection between this idea that we don't make space for emotion in the workplace and, and therefore we won't make space for grief uh, to how that reinforces a white supremacist culture and how that reinforces oppression of people of color um, and privileges white folks. And I don't know, 
as I speak about that, I'm just wondering if you or Abram have any thoughts about how to how to connect the dots there. What I would say, I think what you're you're um, I think what you're saying is really important. I think it's also um, Oh, the word that comes to mind, but it's not the right word, is sophisticated in the sense that there's so many other layers to go through first. Mm. So what I would say is that um, this list, this list of of, of characteristics, um, there's in my view, there's nothing good about any of them. It's not that they're useful sometimes and then they're not useful. They are deeply toxic, mm. always. Mm. And that um, I think that there's a level of grief that we don't want to feel about what it means to have been conditioned into a world that believes those things are important and how that has really twisted us, twisted our souls, twisted our, our flight, fright, the, the somatic responses that our body has, that we are um, deeply conditioned into uh, believing our own superiority and trying to enact it. And that is something to deeply grieve. Um, but there's, Maybe. there's some, and there's some other layers to get through before yeah. we can even understand that there's that there's grief attached to that. Maybe this yeah. will help. I know that I know that one thing white people are after uh, is to feel uh, liked and affirmed and accepted, to feel like they're doing a good job, to feel like they're good people. Um, and I, you know, I genuinely believe all humans are like great and trying to strive for greatness, whatever's in their way. Um, I can promise you that the people of color around you are going to like you a lot more after this process um, mm. because even things that are, you know, the, the constant verbal quirks of society that land on people different ways and like produce emotions because they're connected to stories and not everybody knows the story. And so why can't I say savage if I want to or whatever, right? Like, like when that inevitably happens, you will have had practice talking about it in a way that uh, diffuses the bob. And then like you'll be a white person that your people of color friends feel comfortable talking to and don't feel like you know you can't have to dance around all this stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, there's no panacea, but I, I know that the way through is through dialogue. The way through is through right. dialogue. We've got to talk about it. We've got to make space for right. it. And, that, and so that actually is a good segue to what I was going to ask next, which is about, um, Tamara, if you can tell us what does it look like when people successfully do the work to have the dialogue, to learn the language, to change white supremacy culture? Right. So um, actually it's something that you said made me think of this, which is that I, it's, not, it's not almost more importantly than that people of color will like us more, is that we'll <laughs> like ourselves more. That's just my mm. off, my offer, yeah. Right. No, but that we'll like ourselves more, you know, and that right. it, it's, yeah. I think there's a real problem there's a real problem with um, what I've noticed, and I, this is a long answer to your question, but I'll get to it. What uh, okay. I've noticed, and I, I, it's really important to me to point out, is that in schools particularly, but in every institution, when people say we want to do, when white people say we want to do racial equity work, what we mean is we, we want to we look around the table and see more people of color. That's what they mean. That's what we mm. mean. Um, we don't want not to too many, not too many, but just a little bit more. Yeah. We don't want to fundamentally change our culture. We don't want to right. fundamentally have to change anything. But we give want up to power. Even no. more yeah. people. And um, and what I what I and we tend to focus all of our attention on how are we going to serve and help people of color access our institutions. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really important for us to shift our understanding and to understand that that our lives and our souls and our happiness depends as much on racial equity as anyone's. Yes. And it depends on being able to let go of power in the way that we know we understand power, to understand the genius that we are cutting off from ourselves because we are so conditioned into needing to control and needing things to go a certain way and our perfectionism and all those characteristics, that it's cutting us off at the knees from, from happiness, from an ability, all the different ways there are to experience life, uh, from messiness, the beauty of messiness, from uh, re- reinforcing and liberatory and life-giving culture. So that's the benefit. I mean, in spaces where right. I feel like people have really been able to create a liberatory or a affirming or a loving culture is that you find liberation and affirmation and love and mm-hmm. joy humanity. and humanity and authentic relationships and the ability to move together through conflict and um, yeah, which is just, it's so absent in most of our institutions, you know? Yeah. It's, and, it's so important to, and thank you for naming it the way you did that like the, the way the way that things are uh, dehumanizes everyone, yeah. not just the marginalized groups that are the the direct uh, targets of oppression in specific ways, but everyone, the everybody who's com- you know recruited into a system of enforcement, everyone who is complicit by their tax dollars or voting, like all of us are involved, mm-hmm. um, and that is at the core of. Um, right, the the Black Liberation Movement in the in the mid twentieth century. It's at the core of Black Lives Matter. At the core of 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 every of all of the things we look to as like trying to figure out the hardest zones of tension in the landscape and like forcing the issue of morality at the front lines. It always always comes down to humanizing and to and to being liked is kind of like a pithy way of of saying it. But like, yeah, you're liked because you're able to create humanity around you and maintain your humanity in ways that the system doesn't want you to. And and I also, we have to be careful because it's so easy then to recenter whiteness, right? So there's, there's always a both and it's like the racism and white supremacy are constantly um, relentlessly targeting, violating, harming people and communities of color in direct ways that those of us who are white, some of us experience, but not a lot of us do not. And the more, the more poor we are, the more likely we are to experience that kind of direct violence and hatred. Um, so it's not. I'm not saying that the experience of um, the experience that we're all affected in the same way. It's very much like this pandemic. We're affected very differently. Um, and hmm. and there's to me getting back to your question. There's some grief around. Um, seeing how how the way I'm affected so separates me from people that I would love to be in authentic relationship with. Mm. But, and the barriers that this culture has set up makes that really, really hard to do. Yeah. So but the, I, th- I think there's a, I think there are deep wells of grief that we're all sitting with because this culture is so unloving. Yeah. And um, the more I think we can... Um, learn to sit with each other in our grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a profound idea because we're talking so much about grief right now because we're all grieving things as a result of this pandemic. But what I'm hearing you say is we were grieving before the pandemic started. 
and and like everything else, the pandemic is just magnifying that grief. Yeah, I think a part of my intuition about trying to make a lot of space for it on the podcast is that people are facing it in a, at a level they they just don't they just have never faced it. Which any any loss, especially of of people of people of loved ones, is going to feel like more than you've ever faced before. But like just the scale that people are facing all at once, I felt like we're all going to short circuit and like turn on each other. We got to start figuring out and modeling for each other how to healthily navigate all this stuff. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question, and I don't I don't. It's a weird, a difficult question, and uh, you can figure out uh, how how to answer it. I'm sure anything you say will be brilliant. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, sure. when you have when you have this work, you sort of put on the table this language and these ideas and you start to talk about it with a group of people, different things come out for different people. And I think we spent a lot of time on the podcast, as we often do when we talk about race in America, talking about white people and their reactions. I wonder if there aren't any um, kind of life cycles that you've seen people go through. Uh, from some other identity groups that you've seen show up at workshops that you facilitate. Um, and, and, you know, and what I'm hoping is that in that is some kind of hint at like ways out for where people are stuck. Because I think right now there are a lot of people who are going through this for the first time. Somebody sent me a text message of, of uh, 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 I think, a little girl puking in the toilet and another little girl behind her holding her hair. And the one holding her hair, the little bubble above her said, you know, woke people, uh, people who are just now woke are all kind of like, oh, no, this is all a lie. What am I going to mm -hmm. do? So like a lot of people are just at that beginning this month. Mm -hmm. Right. And so as they go through this process and, and ask questions of the Internet and learn more, um, what are some of the ways that you've seen people navigate through some of the trickier bits? And, I, you know, I ask because you've done this work for so long. Yeah. So I am only going to speak about white people. It's certainly not okay. my place to speak about people of color. Um, uh, although I will say in my community here in Durham, um, where I've lived a long time, what I see happening in communities of color is that people are just gathering together for mutual aid and support. Mm -hmm. um, and I think right. that's always, always a great idea uh, for any group of people. And, um, and I, I would say, so there's another article out there that's not as well known called the, um, the Lifelong Journey of a White Anti-Racist. And it talks about the, the stages that we go through. It's based some on research and some on um, working with lots of white caucuses over time. And it does sort of lay out the stages that people go through. And what I would say is, so that, and that article is available. Um, when the group that I worked with closed Four, four years ago or so, we put all of our resources onto a website and it's called dismantlingracism.org. So you can find this, this um, on there. And I'm not gonna remember all the stages off the top of my head, but basically um, the, the lower stages are, you know, be like, I'm normal, be like me, I, just assuming everybody wants to be like me. Um, then having some dissonance around, oh, actually racism is happening. Maybe not everybody does wanna be like me. Um, and then some stages of guilt and shame and denial and defensiveness that keep us stuck. And then once, if we move out of, and I would say that, that our country as a whole is very much stuck in denial and defensiveness, right? 
doesn't want to feel guilt and shame, which is the next stage. But if we, and as we move through those, there is this kind of taking responsibility stage, this sort of starting to wake up stage that is very much aligned with, with righteousness and self-righteousness. So now that I'm waking up, I feel very righteous about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be, frankly, a pain in the ass to everybody. With my, I'm going to drop my, bombs on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and a lot of calling out and a lot of, you know, shaming and blaming other people uh, and try, as a way of feeling better about who we are. And then there's a, you know, then there's some stages above that where we we start to understand. Um, and, and I think the, the thing the thing I would say to people who are just um, putting all this stuff together is welcome and yay and so happy to see you. <laughs> and um, please, please, please find other people. So find a group of people to be with. Don't the the temptation is to be the hero or the shiro and to and to think I'm going to fix these things and I'm going to save people and I'm going to, that's so deeply embedded in our psyche as, as white people in this capitalist culture, in this individualistic culture. So that's where you're going to make a lot of mistakes is you're going to see something and you're going to, I can fix that. And you're going to swoop in without any accountability or relationships with people. And you're going to put people at risk and, and yourself as well. So start to develop a collective practice and, and, and to, and, find communities of people uh, who are thinking like you and because that's that's where we really find find ourselves in and and start to grow Word. So, does that answer your question yeah yeah well Tema, uh, we always like to ask our guests um as, as we wrap up uh what's one thing that's bringing you a sense of calm in the midst of this storm that we're in um well, because of my situation, I'm actually, um, and because of a personal situation, I've, I've been going through my own sort of uh, personal, not related to the pandemic, grief, fear, um, mm-hmm. pain situation. And I've been um, uh, rediscovering my relationship with what I would call essence, the divine, God, mm-hmm. whatever word yeah. you want to use. And so I'm doing a lot of, um, of uh, centering prayer and um, meditation. Yeah. And that brings me a lot of, and reading, that brings me a lot of calm. I also have an art practice. I, I make collage art, and that brings me a lot of calm. Mm. And, um, and I think the other thing that brings me a lot of calm when I start to feel anxious or I start to feel um, out of control, and I do want to say that I think this pandemic is a can be a great lesson for us to learn how to sit and not knowing, because that's a great skill to have. If, for those of us who want to be anti-racist white people, learning to sit and not knowing is a hugely helpful skill. And there's so much we don't know right now. And rather than freak out about it, white supremacy likes to pretend it can, it can know things it can't possibly know and control things it can't possibly control. And so to see this as an opportunity to practice with that. And so what I would say when I start to feel like I'm going to freak out because I don't know what's going to happen, one of the things I do, and it's so simple, is I try and think of three people to send love to. Mm-hmm. Or I'll send a text or I'll send a postcard or I'll, you know, because it's, just, it's so calming to go, oh, I love this person. I haven't told them in a while. Let me tell them. Mm-hmm. And the thing that happens, which I never remember, such a, is that I get love back. 
Yeah. <laughs> love out and people send it back. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yes. You know, it's yeah. just very, um, it's a simple thing. And there are so many, even if I don't, you could, we can love on people we don't even know. It's like, yeah. Somebody yeah. did a YouTube that you liked or wrote an article that you liked. One of my favorite things to do is when I read good articles by people, is I track them down and I send them, I just read your article on the history of um, Bhagat 10 versus. U.S. Supreme Court. It was the best article I ever read. You know, it's like, who doesn't like getting a love love message like that? Yeah. Wow. That all sounds so healthy. Yeah. Thank <laughs> um, you for that. <laughs> prayer, meditation, art, and and when and sitting in the not knowing. Mm-hmm. So sending those love messages out. I love that. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned your website or the website dismantling racism. Uh, Tell us again the the URL and anywhere else that you'd like to point people to find out more about your work or anybody else's. So that's the main one. It's it's www.dismantlingracism, one word, dot org. Um, and I think it's dot org. Yeah, dot org. It'll come up. And um, all you'll find all kinds of materials there. We do I, we do update it. And I'm, I'm working on another web, website now. It's not going to be ready for quite a while, but... Once it is ready, it'll be linked to, the, to that one. Well, you have to come back when it's ready. That's that's all. Yes. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much. We are deeply honored to have been able to speak with you and learn from you. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So let's end like good radicals. Abram, what's one thing that you learned today that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? It's hard to pick, <clears throat> hard to pick one thing because um, it's such a sprawling conversation. Um, yeah, I think the, the just the, the idea that um, we are not alone, right? That uh, Hannah Arendt, right? In, in, in uh, Emergence of Totalitarianism, right? Says that fascism is organized loneliness. Uh, like what's intended is that we feel isolated and alone. And then we come in contact with people who have been down this road before, who have fought these thoughts before, and who kind of whispered to us, no, actually, hang on. Like, it's okay. Watch, this is what's going to happen. And we realize that there is another thing at play, right? There's the the curriculum that we all signed up for when, when we paid our tuition in, and then there's the hidden curriculum, the things that you're learning from your colleagues, from each other, right? And so much what I've learned, especially as I've tried to hone my ear to the voice of the generation, you know, that is going to follow me, um, mm-hmm. as I've listened to youth in high school settings, college settings, um, this, this issue of like, well, we're not going to continue forward 
with quote unquote the work because we've got to deal with restoring this thing that happened yesterday, right? We've got to do that work of talking about what happened and healing this little community and otherwise, you know, homework, whatever. And, and then I think what, what's happening in coronavirus is that all the rules are suspended anyway. We've been talking for so long about disrupting the system and it's disrupted. It's down. It's mm -hmm. all the way. It's as down as it's ever going to be. Mm -hmm. now, now, now is the time to convene that Zoom call and start that process of making mm -hmm. sense of what's happening, of making sense of these things that we don't know how to talk about, making sense of our grief, making sense of our privilege and our positionality in a racialized society. This yeah. is this is it. This is the work. And if, you know, we're stuck at home, you know, it's this or it's this or another round of, of Friends or Parks and Rec on Netflix or something. Right. Um, yeah. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do the work and let's come out of this with a sense of, um, at, at minimum, a sense of a shared language that like this is yeah. a dialogue we're going to have and we're going to talk about these words yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and well, beyond that, some real healing. Yeah. Well, hopefully some real policy too. Um, real change. And, yeah, some real change, um, material change as well as, as, as everything else. Um, one thing that struck me in the beginning of the conversation was um, when Emma said that white supremacy culture, the culture is a set of beliefs and values, but that they are what we consider normal. And I think one of the opportunities in this moment, in the disruption that you were talking about, is, is to re-examine all the things that we thought were normal before. Right. Yes. And we realize now we're contributing to massive inequality. Yeah, and uh, it's a conversation that I, I've even been fortunate to start having in my workplace. Like even when we think about just one concrete example of an inequality that, you know, now we're so aware of how disparate uh, opportunities around remote learning are. So there are people, there are kids, families all over the city who who don't have devices to do remote learning, and so there's this mad, mad scramble and all this money being spent. And then there are other places where the devices were already in the homes and people knew how to use them, right? And so much of that is obviously correlated to, to income and wealth um, and race. And uh, Listen, with $90 a month for internet, I'm telling you, it's, yeah, it's a choice. Yeah. But this was a thing that was hidden from us that we weren't, that so many of us weren't really thinking about mm -hmm. before and now is, is front and center. But there's... There's much more, and it's not just in the material, it's not in the devices, it's in the culture. And, um, and yeah, hopefully in this moment, we're just raising up all the, all the things that we never want to be normal again. Yeah, yeah, and I think, we, I think we just have to come back with some personal and shared sense that we're not going back. You know, like... I don't know. I don't know who can stand against the the masses of people who who just feel like this is not acceptable. This is not the country we want to live in and and build. You know, we want something else. We want that multicultural democracy, pluralist thing that 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 supposedly we were building all along. Um, and we're gonna do, we're gonna do that. We're gonna do that whether yeah. or not the system likes it or appreciates it you know, we're going to rebuild it. Yeah. All right. Well, this conversation is going to continue on for much longer. 
I'm going to say, uh, listeners, Tema is still with us. She listened in, so I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot and just see if you want to add anything before we go, Tema. That now you got that you got to listen to our reflection. Um, well, what's occurring to me is that when when Kenneth and I first started doing this work, we we focused a lot of our attention on institutional change, like how to change policies and procedures. And over time, I think, um, you know, before he died and then after he died, as we kept doing the work as part of his legacy, I just started to see how culture, I'm not, I think all of it's important. I'm not saying anything is, that's all important. I'm most interested in how we shift culture because I feel like we can look at movements, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, mm-hmm. and we can see how, um, first of all, all those movements get diverted from justice to access, and then also how um, it's easy to undo those m- movements because the culture hasn't really changed. The belief systems about people haven't really mm. changed. And the good news about cultural shift, uh, one of my chapters in the book about cultural shift is it doesn't require a majority. We don't have to have a numerical majority to shift the culture. Um, and again, I think we've all seen that in our mm-hmm. lifetimes. So um, I just I just wanted to say that I'm very interested in in the that culture is what shapes policy and procedure and, and they they wind around with each other. Um, and I'm just really interested in thinking about how we can shift culture because we have control yes. in our own groups, we have control and power over the kind of cultures that we create with each other. Culture eats policy for breakfast. (laughs) All right. Well, um, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for that. Uh, And we want our listeners to know, hey, if you like this conversation, please give us a follow or a rating or comment on Apple Podcasts. uh, Or if not there, wherever you listen to your podcasts, we definitely appreciate it. Yeah, and we also want to end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.